Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. For this episode, we have two segments. The first is an interview with Eric Simmerer, co-host of a board gaming podcast called The Dice Tower, regarding his experience with the Pokemon trade card game. We discuss how he played the game in its early days and how he got back into it. Our second segment is an archival interview with Neil Jason, who wrote and arranged a number of songs from the early seasons of the Pokemon dub. These include Viridian City and the movie versions of the first two season themes. We also talk about some of his work as a bass player and some of his wife's music as well. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Eric Summer, who some of you have heard in one of actually several possible places. Uh, but he's here today to talk about his experience with the Pokemon trading card game. Now, just a little quick piece of background. Eric does a variety of things. He uh, does the voice for audiobooks. He also runs something called the Dice Tower Podcast, which is a sort of a board and uh, other types of games uh, podcast. Uh, but he does have some experience with the Pokemon trading card game, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first of all, Eric, uh, where are you from originally, and how did you originally get introduced to the Pokemon trading card game? Uh, well, I, uh, I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, went to school in Syracuse. And while in college, this was, I graduated in 2000. So this was sort of right at the, the peak of Generation 1 Pokemon. Uh, I was introduced to the card game by uh, one of my buddies and uh, started collecting cards, played with my wife after we left college. You know, I got married after, right after college. Uh, started playing with her. Uh, and so pretty much from the base set to the fossil set, all the way through the Neo set is when we were playing. And then just sort of fell off, uh, started playing other games, and uh, just recently have gotten back into it. Yeah, that's a... Uh... That's the way a lot of folks started, although, you know, you were in college when you got started, which is kind of interesting. Um, what were your thoughts about the game back then? Well, I, I thought it was a, a fun distraction. Uh, we were fans of the cartoon of the of the series, uh, saw the first three movies in the theater uh, and, and just really enjoyed the the flavor and the uh, the style of the whole thing. And so that's where I started was with the series. And then getting to play the game was kind of cool to, to have a one-on-one -on -one adventure and have the, you know, the thrill of the chase is, I think, what a lot of people like about uh, trading card games and, and trying to – finding a card in a pack – and trying to figure out how to integrate that into your deck and what else you needed to make that card work. Oh, this this looks great. If only I had, you know, another couple of basics to to fit with this nice evolved form that I have now. Uh, and so we'd, we'd find something in a pack and then either hope to find cards that worked with it in other packs or actually go hunting on eBay to try and find cards that, that worked well. Yep, yep. eBay has definitely been around uh, since the, since the late '90s, so uh, it it goes back. Now, did you ever have any experience with the video game side of it, or were you just not into video games at all back then, or how did that work out? I played plenty of video games, but I didn't have a Game Boy, so I didn't have a portable system that would allow me to play Pokemon. I did 
years later, when I started recording audiobooks and, and commuting into New York on the train, to do that, I did get a DS, a DS Lite, and got one of the Pokemon games then. But that was the first experience with the video game. Uh, it was only sort of, I knew of it peripherally. But really, my, my Pokemon experience was the card game and the TV series and the movies. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, did you have experience with any other uh, collectible card games that weren't? Well, Pokemon sort of started kind of a rush there, but there was in the early days there was Magic, of course, right. was sort of the the big first one, and then uh, Yu-Gi-Oh. Either of those or anything else from that area you played uh, trading card game wise? I, I mean, friends would try to get me into Magic because you know that was always the oh Pokemon's too simple. You need to get into to magic here. And I just never really was interested in magic. Pokemon had much more of a draw. And I think because I was a fan of the series, it was it was something that I could get behind these characters and and know what a Gengar was and, and you know, make that part of my deck. Uh, magic just never had a draw. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, you eventually, you know, you dropped out for a while. And then you eventually came back, and, and that was sort of a, a convergence of a couple things in there. Can you sort of explain how that got started uh, basically a few years ago, right? Sure. Well, you know, Pokemon led me to places that sold Pokemon cards, and they also sold other games. And so I started looking at Looney Labs products and other stuff that they sold in these stores, leading me to Catan Transamerica, Carcassonne, and all of these hobby games that then led me to BoardGameGeek.com, if you're familiar with that. And that led me to podcasts that were just starting to take off. And there was one in particular called The Dice Tower uh, that I became a fan of listening to. Uh, And uh, that's run by Tom Vassell, a famous board game reviewer. And I wrote in one day, (laughs) entering a contest to The Dice Tower, and, and said, hey, if you ever need production help, I had just recently left a radio job and was doing voiceovers full time and not very actively. So I had some free time on my hands. I had equipment. I could do stuff for a podcast I was a fan of uh, and got more and more involved with this show because Tom said free labor. Yes, absolutely. I'm in Uh, and eventually became the co-host when the the then current co-host left Korea, which is where Tom and Sam Healy were recording this. He asked me to do a long-distance record, become the co-host for for the podcast. And this was back in 2009. So I've been doing this for a while uh, as now co-host of the Dice Tower podcast, which has a lot of publishers asking to have us review their games. So I'll, I'll very often, not as often as Mr. Vassal, but occasionally get review games in the mail uh, and they want to find out what we think and have us talk about it on the podcast. And at one point, the Pokemon company uh, contacted us and said, hey, you know, are you interested in getting our latest wave of starter decks? And this was the beginning of the XY wave, I do believe. I'm not as as together with what the sequence is of all of these as you are, but um, th- there were three starter decks and they, they sent one of each and a couple of boosters and said, try them out, let us know what you think, and, and review it on the show. And I introduced it to my then, I want to say he was six at the time, son, my elder son. And uh, he enjoyed it, but it never really took off. We, we, we went and bought some more boosters, a couple of elite trainer boxes, and, and you know tried to sort of get this thing going, uh, stoke the fires a little bit. And he enjoyed it, but it never really caught on. But I did enjoy getting my old decks out, my, my old cards, and uh, trying my decks against his new decks. Uh, enjoyed it, but it didn't quite take off. Skip ahead a few years, 
And then you've got the Pokemon Go resurgence, and my youngest son watching the television series. And I said, you know what, buddy? You you know all these Pokemon from Pokemon Go, and you know them from the TV show. What if I showed you my old deck, and I, you know, brought out one of these old ones from 2000, 2001, and his eyes just bugged out. Oh my goodness, you've got... Here's Pikachu, here's Raichu, here's all of these characters that I know know from these other places. And then he said, I want my own deck. I want to play this game. And and he has just jumped in with both feet into the game. And it's gotten his brother interested as well. So now all three of us are playing. And this past Christmas, there was a lot of Pokemon card opening um, and building of decks. And we got some of the championship decks uh, to try those out. And it's really just been a huge resurgence in my house. Well, it's, it's great to see that you you, you sort of uh, rediscovered the game that way, both you know through one of your hobbies, running a podcast, and also th- uh, through your kids there. I and mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like you've really had a great opportunity there to sort of connect with them. And I, I think some of the maybe Pokemon fans who were a little younger when they started the game are going to be having that opportunity within the next few years as they start having kids. So that's uh, something for them to look forward to as well, I suppose. Absolutely. It's been great. Now, of course, since you had that big gap, a lot kind of changed in between those times. Uh, what did you kind of notice when you came back to it that sort of uh, changed over the years with the game? Well, uh, the biggest change is the existence of the EX Pokemon, that, which which sort of took me by surprise. I I mean, obviously, there's going to be power creep. <laughs> from, from 2000 to now, there's been many years of releases and waves and all that stuff, and and trying to keep fans interested during that entire time, there's going to be evolution, for lack of a better term. Uh, and I expected that. But the EX existence was really, I mean, at first I was just totally bowled over by the huge jump in power between a basic basic and an EX basic being able to just destroy me. And and it used to, I mean, my understanding of the game was you build your decks around the, the basics and then the level ones, maybe level twos, and you have that pyramid structure that you're building up to. And the most you can maybe do if you're really lucky and you've got Charizard fully powered up is maybe 120 damage. And now I'm seeing these EX characters and mega EX characters that can do so much more than that. Um, and it, it took me a while to wrap my mind around how to deal with those and, and start to build decks around dealing with the EX characters. And at first, I thought it was overpowered. Um, I guess it certainly helped that I've gotten some cards that are EXs, and I've, you know, looked at some of the sets that are built... The, the updating set of the, what is it, EX or XY... Evolutions. Evolutions that updates the classic cards, um, which has been fun. They, you know, raise a character a couple of hit points or, or give them some slightly stronger abilities... Knowing that you're going to be dealing with some stronger EX characters out there, that's kind of cool. So I've actually just been doing one-to-one swaps when I get one of these characters. Uh, when I get a good card that I already had in a deck, I'll just swap them out. Um, and and that's that's been the biggest change. And also, it seems like the competitive decks, although I said I was never really into the competitive scene back when I was playing in 2000, um, I did read some strategy articles back then about how to build a really good streamlined deck. And I think the philosophy seems to be very different now, noticing that with the some Pokemon abilities are so useful that having a Pokemon in your deck that you have no intention of ever attacking with, it doesn't fit the theme of your deck, is still in there because its ability is so good. 
almost like it's another trainer card that you can bring out and have some sort of ability that syncs and synergizes with the rest of your deck. That I wasn't seeing back in 2000, um, but it's kind of neat to see now. Yeah, they, they've certainly rebalanced things. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'll be honest, the hugest fan of the way EXs were, were implemented. The, those, the modern EXs started in the fifth generation. There was something similar in the third. But I, I will say that, yes, there's definitely been some power creep, which is kind of inevitable in any game that goes on for that long without any sort of hard reset, mm. um, which I, I guess they've been fortunate enough to avoid. Um, you know, some games do ha- end up having to do that at some point. But uh, yeah, the yeah, the evolution set has definitely been bringing some of that stuff back. I do kind of hope that they do something like that in the future uh, again, uh, in some capacity. So you had mentioned, of course, that you know playing the Pokemon TCG got you into hobby stores, which got you into sort of the more uh, designer uh, game thing that has sort of uh, blossomed in the last ten to to fifteen years. Has being in the Pokemon card game originally, has that sort of given you any sort of perspective or made you notice anything about some of the, some uh, some more modern board games or uh, deck building games or things like that? Well, I mean, I can I can tell you that that playing the Pokemon game uh, has certainly helped me with with seeing things in an efficiency engine or from a, an efficiency perspective. Because if you think about it, a you know Pokemon deck is an efficiency engine. It's a race to see who can take out six six prizes first. And it's sort of taught me as as you try and build decks that work and test out decks and realize, you know, that something isn't working right and, you know, maybe you need to adjust the energy mix in a deck or, or put in different trainer cards or adjust to an opponent that you didn't expect. It sort of taught me how to look for those forms of efficiency and those synergies in other standalone games. Uh, you might have a, a deck of cards uh, in, in a, a dudes on a map game uh, where you're battling stuff and acquiring powers and knowing which cards mesh well together and allow you to be more efficient is a key skill in these games or, or various tokens or powers or stuff to invest in in an economic game that's going to make life easier for you. Uh, and that that's a very useful skill in uh, modern board gaming finding those points to to invest in early that are going to help you out later. So I certainly feel like that's a that's a good skill. I have also been or exposed to uh, different economic models from a publishing standpoint that that try to capture something similar to the TCG model uh, without going the booster route and having to chase down those rares and ultra rares and all of that. Um, the the living card game model, which which sends out you know chunks of cards as a set, so I know if I'm buying X Y Z set, uh, I'm getting all the cards in that set, and I can play with them however I want, but I'm not chasing anything blindly. Mm. Um, and then there are other companies that have gone that same route, Dice Masters and um, the new Star Wars Destiny set that has blind boosters. Um, that that's still a model that works, but I. I sort of gravitate more toward the I know what I'm getting model these days. Although recently in the last few months, my kids are pushing me back in that TCG direction. Yeah, they'll do that. There is a certain appeal to sometimes not knowing exactly what you're going to get. But I also appreciate the desire to sort of have more of a sure thing there. That's always a balancing act 
not only in you know what games you're you're going to buy, but also in the design of a mechanical design of games is sort of balancing mm-hmm. out those two things as well. Are there any particular board games or other types of hobby games you might recommend to someone who likes the Pokemon trading card game? Oh boy. Well, um, I would not recommend if you ever see in in Goodwill or uh, on eBay there is a game called the Pokemon Master Trainer game. I don't I don't recommend it. Don't play it. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I bought that way back in 2000, and no, it's gone now. I, I don't know how much your listeners, uh, how much experience your listeners have with the modern hobby sphere, but Dominion is an excellent choice for deck building fans, um, for for TCG fans, uh, and there's plenty of expansions to play with there, uh, and and scratches that itch of building an efficient deck as you play through the game. Um, Millennium Blades is one that I haven't played, but it emulates the the chase of a TCG model. Um, you, you actually spend certain phases of the game collecting booster packs, buying cards, tweaking your deck, and then you move on to a battle phase, which sort of emulates a, uh, a tournament or a competition, and see who does a better job based on what they bought in the first part of the game. I haven't played it, but I've heard very good things about Millennium Blades. Yeah, I haven't played it either. I, I was kind of actually hoping, though, it would come up. I, I do know some folks who have, and uh, it, it's I think it's about as meta as a game gets, I guess. Hmm. Yes, a little bit, especially if you're you're coming in, you know, with just just an experience, say playing Pokemon, and then jumping into Millennium Blades. That that would be an interesting an interesting experience. Uh, if you are a fan of more than just Pokemon, like Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic as well, there's a Munchkin CCG that is coming out that uses the the CCG TCG model, but also makes fun of it. It does for trading card games what the original Munchkin, the Steve Jackson Games product, does for role-playing games. So there's a lot of humor, a lot of inside jokes about characters and card combos from Yu-Gi-Oh, from Pokemon, from Magic, and and it they really take a nice tongue-in-cheek look at the whole sphere. My favorite deck-building game, not I don't know if it's my favorite, probably the one that has gotten me most excited over the past year or so though is the Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle hmm. game. This is this is from USAopoly. This is a cooperative deck-building game that works its way through the Harry Potter license through all they 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 officially refer to them as games game 1 through 7 but it's really book slash movie 1 right. through 7 um working your way through the different stories and you add more cards to the system it starts out with a very basic uh deck building that that are very similar to many other deck building games you may find out there um but you are helping each other out on somebody else's turn or or giving tokens on your turn to other players and really working to tweak your deck to do specific things that, that may be something that your team needs. Uh, I, I found the game fascinating and it works its way all the way through all seven books and can be totally scaled back to the first book if you're starting with new players or, or just want to start over. Yeah, that's a, that actually does sound pretty interesting and uh yeah, that's a that's a new thing. Not to be confused with the um, old. There was a Harry Potter TCG that around the turn of the century that they tried to tried to push in the big TCG uh, craze there. After especially there after was, like, and we we tried it. We we played uh, maybe through the first wave 
maybe second wave. There was the Quidditch expansion. And we got to there and decided, yeah, not we can't really divide our attention between Pokemon and this. So we'll stick with the Pokemon. Yeah, I never really tried it out, but I did kind of want to mention that just to, to kind of point out that those are separate things. Yes, this came out just this past year. Uh, you can find it at Bar- Barnes & Noble, of, of all places. Uh, it's it's in their, their movie section. You'll find it there. Well, I'm willing to bet there's a decent overlap between Pokemon fans and Harry Potter fans, so that might be something worth uh, checking out, at least for a little bit there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you had mentioned earlier about the Dice Tower. It's it's there's a sort of a core podcast, and you have a number of other ones. Um, you talked a little bit about the main one. Can you do you want to briefly describe a couple of the other ones in the network? Sure. Well, I mean, you've got the Dice Tower, which is the flagship podcast. And several years back, we sort of teamed up with some other podcasts to form a network, the Dice Tower Network, which you can find at dicetowernetwork.com. And uh, there's all sorts of interesting shows from different perspectives, all different areas of board and card gaming. Uh, A few that I particularly like are um, Flip the Table, which is a hilarious podcast where four guys play cheesy, weird, and obscure games, often from like the 1980s. They'll play a Transformers game or a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. Some of the stuff that we played as kids – But they approach it as adults and often to disastrous results Uh, and and then make fun of it. There's always a game show at the end. It's really a very entertaining program. And then on the total other side of the spectrum is a show called Ludology, which takes a very deep look at game design, game culture, and different ways of approaching gaming, often from a designing standpoint – and, and it's hosted by two very strong game designers, um, Jeff Engelstein and uh, Mike Fitzgerald. And they, you know, both have a bunch of games under their belt, certainly know their stuff, and they will interview designers. And they've interviewed pinball game designers. They've interviewed – in fact, um, Mike Fitzgerald worked on the Pokemon card game. I totally forgot that. <laughs> so if you're a fan – if you're a Pokemon fan, that Ludology is is one to look at. I don't know what era he worked in or if he's still working in that sphere, but he does have Pokemon credits uh, under his belt. So that's Ludology uh, and lots of other variety shows and some in-depth programs that only do you know one or two games in an episode and others that just cover as many games as possible in, in any one uh, episode. Really worth worth checking out, Dicetowernetwork.com. And speaking of Pokemon Connections and the Dice Tower Network, actually, the Flip the Table podcast uh, back in 2014, they did review that uh, that Pokemon board game Pokemon Master Trainer. They did. wasn't necessarily the worst thing they saw, but it wasn't going to win their best of the year either. So. No. But no. That, actually, that's how I got into that podcast was through that episode, and I've, I've oh. been hooked ever since, and that sort of led me to the rest of the Dice Tower. Yeah, I, I'm on one of those episodes, if you search far enough. I'm, Saved I by the Bell, if I remember correctly. Saved by the Bell, that's it. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of, like I said, the Dice Tower Network, you're also doing sort of a, a, a fundraiser to sort of uh, – increase sort of the scope and doing some special things. Uh, Why don't you talk about that? That's on Indiegogo, correct? Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, the Dice Tower is listener and viewer supported. Not only is there the podcast, there's also a whole video series. If you go on YouTube and search for almost any game, there's a good chance that someone from the Dice Tower Tower has reviewed it. Um, But it's all... We, we don't have any advertising on the show, and, and 
We are all supported by our, our viewers, our audience. And so every year we do a fundraising campaign on this year, Indiegogo. And you can find it either at Indiegogo, searching for the Dice Tower, or go to Dicetower.com and you'll find a link there. And we've got some thank you gifts, some promos for various games. Uh, but, but the important thing is that we're beholden to our audience and not necessarily to uh, a publisher or to a game that we you know, maybe aren't as enthusiastic about, but we have to smile about because they're paying us. We'd much rather be beholden to the people who enjoy our content. Uh, and so that's why we do a, a fan fundraising campaign every year, and that's active till the end of the month on Indiegogo. And I seem to remember hearing in a recent episode, you're doing something later this month. Uh, hopefully there's still some time for folks to uh, listen in uh, to that. Can you explain what that is? Uh, if you're talking about the live gaming marathon? Yep. Uh, yeah, Tom and crew are going to uh, be gaming for 30 hours, I believe. Now, that's not the same group going for 30 hours. They have some sort of rotation system. I was unable to join them this year. I got to go down last year for a 24-hour gaming marathon, which was a blast. Uh, I'm in Connecticut, and they're all the way down in uh, the Miami area in Homestead, Florida. Uh, but it's going to be a good time. You can watch them do this live uh, on YouTube. It, they'll be streaming the whole thing, taking questions, chatting with everybody, and trying to endure their way through 30 hours of gaming. And uh, that's coming up Thursday, the 12th of January, 2017. Uh, and uh, I know I'll be tuning in just to uh, to see how they're they're holding up. Maybe not right at the beginning because they're going to be totally ready to go. Um, maybe later on get to see how uh, how loopy they've gotten. Yeah, I, I know the feeling after after playing a, a long game or going to a long tournament. Uh, definitely know that feeling. Oh yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eric. You bet. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been Stephen Reich from the Poker Press Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. On the phone with Eric Summer of the Dice Tower Network, talking about uh, his experience with the Pokemon trade card game. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich, here at the PokePress Pierre and Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Neil Jason, who worked on quite a number of things for Pokemon, actually. He uh, basically uh, wrote a couple songs and actually rearranged the themes for the, uh, for the first two Pokemon movies. We'll get into that in a little bit, but first off, Neil, uh, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And uh, what was your early musical career like? Uh, did you uh, take any lessons or, or play any instruments? Hi, Stephen. Thanks for uh, having me on. My career... Uh the, the my beginning in instruments uh, started the public school system where I learned how to play trumpet and I learned about reading, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and a lot of practicing. And I switched to bass or played started playing bass right at the beginning of my college career and uh, piano and a few other instruments. And I really uh, stuck with bass, and it's become a lifelong passion. It's uh, I love playing. And, uh, you know, what was your early career once you had gotten out of school and started working professionally? What was that like? Well, I was a session player for quite a while, and I played on Brothers in Arms with Dire Straits. I did three or four Roxy Music albums, uh, Flesh and Blood and Boys and Girls. I played for Paul McCartney, for Hall & Oates, for Cindy Lauper's records, Diana Ross's records, lots of movies, um, 
lots of television, lots of jingles. Uh, it was a wonderful playing time, and it taught me a lot about my arranging technique and about my production technique. That's an awesome opportunity getting to work with. Uh, any particular one that might have been your, your favorite of that uh, part of your career? Yes, all of them. <laughs> good answer, good answer. So, um, you know, obviously you had worked with some, some real legends out there, and eventually you got the chance to work on Pokemon. Uh, how did that get started? Uh, how did you get introduced to it? And uh, what was some of the, what was like the first thing you worked on there? Well, I was good friends with uh, John Leffler and also John Siegler, uh, who wrote the theme with John Leffler. And we had worked together on lots of different projects in the past, and they needed to uh, have a larger crew of guys available to work on some of the Pokemon movie stuff and television stuff and songs for the CDs. So John asked me if I would co-write with him on a couple of things, and so I went up to see some of the stuff about Pokemon and the movie and get some of the books and read some of the history and figure out what the heck we were going to write about. must have been a very interesting process. Uh, so you did uh, ended up doing some research. Uh, what was that like? It was actually fun. It took us a while, some of us, to figure out. It's, it's an entire, like, you know, life science Pokemon. It's another world. And you really have to learn about all the places and the people and the actions and the powers before you could really talk about it or sing about it. So as much as we could all write great music, you had to write a song about the Pokemon world. And that means you have to know about Pokemon. So... We actually, you know, we read the books, we checked out the cards, we saw as many films as we could, and it was a lot of fun, actually. And then you start to develop titles and ideas and things that are important because you've seen enough of them that you know, hmm, you know, Pikachu, very important character, Viridian City, very important place. These are things that the characters will want to sing about, and that's the way uh, I came up with a lot of the songs. That's pretty cool. And and one thing you worked on uh, specifically, uh, in addition to you know uh, Viridian City on 2BM Master and some of the stuff on Totally Pokemon, is you had to rearrange the themes for uh, the first two movies. Now, you had worked on songs for movies before. Um, how does that kind of differ from regular song uh, songwriting or arrangement? Is there anything different about the process there, or um, anything else we should know? Well, the song written by uh, John Siegel and John Leffler, you had to keep the integrity of the song, so to speak, because the fans really knew the song. At the same time, it had to match some of the stuff on the screen. And uh, again, staying to the integrity of the song, making sure that it still sounded like the original uh, as far as intent and melody, but with a new twist and definitely with, uh, you know, insane energy, and it worked out fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I remember certainly with the first movie, they actually showed uh, earlier this year a digitally remastered version, so I've actually seen it uh, a decent number of times over the last couple months re-watching it, and uh, that is really, because you have to integrate that with, you know, all the all the battle sounds and, and Ash talking and 
uh, but you certainly uh, pulled it off there. Um, what was it like when you when you saw the the final product? How first of all, how close to the final product were you when you did the uh, thing there? Was it all just MIDI, and then you someone it went off somewhere to get uh, actually recorded, or how close was it to the final sound when you were finished working with it? Oh, it was really close when I was done working with it um, because we uh, and still do. We all had our own studios at that point. So we were able to, as we were close to the end of writing, or even as we were writing, actually record the stuff and watch the pencil drawings or the partial films that we had so that we could match up stuff as best as we could. But when we were done, we were done except for mastering. We had what we wanted. Oh, so the, so the instruments sounded pretty much the same as what was in the, the final recording then? Oh, yeah. No, we didn't have to, uh, again, if we needed strings, they came to us. We had a studio. So when we were done, all we had to do was have it mastered for the film house, and that was it. Yeah, just kind of something I've kind of wondered about that. So um, when you heard the final product for these to, these songs, uh, what was your kind of reaction there? Well, it's a whole different thing to go to a movie theater with people in it and hear it and see it than it is even in a screening, which is always nice, but it's not the size of your local movie theater. And I made a point, and we all do at some point, to go see it in a really nice big movie theater. And it sounds unbelievable. (laughs) It really is a lot of fun, because that's a huge difference when you think about, you know, staying up till three in the morning because they keep shifting the effects and you can't start singing there. You got to start singing in the bar later. You got to move everything or re-sing. Or, I mean, they suddenly it's like, well, you know what? That's pretty freaking fun. It was really loud, so I loved it. Glad you, uh, you know, obviously enjoyed the the finished product too. That's always uh, a great thing to be able to to hear your work and to hear you know other people's reactions to it. So after the first couple movies, you did work on um, a couple other things for the, the for the Pokemon TV show. Uh, what were they? Uh, which, which songs? Um, there's one or two that names that I cannot remember. I know there was Viridian City. I know there was Pikachu. And there were two or three other ones that I wrote with John Leffler and John McCurry that uh, show up on various albums. But... Um, that was about it, and then it took on a life of its own for a while, and then, of course, we all have other projects to do, and, uh, you know, other guys took over, and I guess it wound itself down a little bit after that. Yeah, it did, which is, you know, in a way kind of a shame, but it's great that you were able to contribute when you had the, a, a chance there. I'm, I, I really like uh, really like those songs. Yeah, I was thrilled to work with those guys, too. They were all fantastic to work with. All right. Well, speaking of your other work, since then you've done uh, really a, b- a bunch of other stuff. First of all, you've uh, you'll occasionally um, be part of the uh, the band on uh, the Late Show with David Letterman. Uh, what what is that like? Well, I continue to do a lot of things that I've always done since the beginning. One is I've been um, playing uh, as uh, subbing for the illustrious Will Lee on bass on the David Letterman show for like 31 years. I've played with Paul Schaefer on many, many albums and as well as everybody else in the band. 
So I still continue to do that, you know, uh, probably about 60 or so days a year. Um, I feel in there so wonderful to uh, see those guys. And, you know, in addition to working on a, you know, a nationally televised uh, program a couple dozen nights a year, uh, you also, first of all, your, your wife is actually uh, involved in music, and uh, she actually put something out recently uh, on uh, an album. What album is that? And, and tell us a little bit about it. Um, Marwan, thanks so much for asking. My wife, her name is Brigitte Zari, is a jazz vocalist and a composer. And uh, her second CD, which is called L'Amour, uh, came out last month and is doing just fantastic. Went to number one in France and a few other places. Is still in the top 40, doing fantastic on radio. And she's about to go out and start touring. And I couldn't be more thrilled. I love producing uh, jazz, and she's just a fantastic artist. And it keeps me... Uh, busy along with working with uh, Randy Brecker on the Brecker Brothers Reunion um, band. And Randy, in fact, guest soloed on Brigitte's latest CD. And uh, just staying busy in the studio. Sounds really great. Um, so uh, if people are interested in your wife's work, uh, she has a website. Uh, wh what is that? Uh, absolutely. It's uh, www. BrigitteZari.com, and of course I'll spell that, B-R-I-G-I-T-T-E-Z-A-R-I-E.com. And her new album is named L'Amour, and I'm sure they'll love it. As far as me, if you want to know other stuff that I've done, uh, you can go to AllMusic.com and just type in Neil Jason, and it has a wondrous list that I'm so happy somebody's kept track of this stuff. Absolutely. One of the great things is that we have, you know, access to this kind of information now um, at our fingertips. All right. Well, thank you very much, Neil. It's been great having you on. Thank you, Stephen. This has been Stephen Reich from the Poké Press PR and Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Neil Jason, who, um, you know, wrote and uh, arranged quite a number of songs for the Pokémon TV show. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Hey, um... Fairly straightforward pop uh, song, uh, you know, it's performed by Innocence. And it sort of talks about, you know, various things and sort of debates about how important is it to sort of understand everything versus sometimes you have to sort of move past things. Uh, do you feel, Anne, like that really ties into the movie? If so, how? It does and it doesn't for me. Because on the one hand... You know, you could almost make a case that this doesn't fit the movie or the series at all because so much of the series is like, we want to explore the unknown. We want to know the unknown. We want to find out the mysteries of the Pokemon world. That's what the narrator says every episode. Um, but in this specific movie, you know, we've got a, a little girl worried about her future and, you know, We've got people bogged down by the tragedies in their life and unable to focus on the beauty that is around them and, and unable to reach out to the world because of fear. 